Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us, we welcome you again. Thank you for being with us. If you would be opening your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We'll be looking out of Nehemiah, the first chapter, in just a few minutes. If you are going to help with the trip to Mississippi, April the 9th, please meet with Bobby Cole in the library immediately following services. We're thankful for Bobby and all those that are willing to go and to be a part of this effort. And if you are planning on doing that, be sure and remember that meeting immediately following services in the library. Also, keep in mind that the postcards are available for Friends Day. Now's the time to be planning who you will invite, praying about it, and then giving those invitations. Keep in mind this year, because of two services, uh, that gives us the opportunity to have them over to our home for lunch. It gives us the opportunity to take them out to lunch. It gives a lot of opportunity for us to visit with our friends and then invite them down to the park at 2 o'clock and spend time uh, in fellowship there. Also, uh, keep in mind, this is going to be a wonderful opportunity uh, for those in the past that because of your health, uh, you have gone visiting other places that particular Sunday. Uh, we generally have several of our members that go somewhere else because of the overcrowding problem. We don't have to worry about that this year. Uh, that's, that's a good problem. And, and so uh, we can invite as, as many as we can possibly invite. And we'll probably not have more than 15 or 1,600 that day. So we should have plenty of room uh, for, for anyone that you invite. So uh, be sure and take advantage of that this year. And it's going to be neat to see uh, how God is going to prosper and bless us in those endeavors. We appreciate Doug and the work that he is putting into this in organizing uh, this Friends Day. <clears throat> also, uh, we want to mention again uh, another group that went on a mission trip this past week. <clears throat> and that is uh, Megan Perry and Allie Gammons. They went to the city of uh, children in Mexico. And we are thankful for the work that they did this past week. We're thankful that they're safely home and how wonderful it is uh, to have uh, many individuals in this congregation that want to serve God by giving their time and their energy. Let's make sure that we all find our place to serve God and let's be involved in every way that we can. The Wright brothers in 18 and 78 were just little boys. Their father came in one day with a toy in his hand. He tossed the toy into the air. Instead of just falling to the ground, it fluttered up to the ceiling and bouncing across the ceiling all the way across the room before it finally fell to the ground. The boys gasped. They'd never seen a toy that flew before. They immediately cried, it's a bat. Their father explained, no, it's a helicopter. They ran over to the bamboo frame, the cork wood, and they looked at this fragile piece that their father had made. <clears throat> it, was wind, it was wound tight by two rubber bands. They immediately wound them again and blew it over and over and over. Needless to say, that little fragile toy didn't last long in the hands of two little boys. But the vision that was cast that day was never forgotten to them. As a little child, those boys began to believe, perhaps one day we can fly. Others around them would think that they were crazy if they spoke seriously about flying. But yet as young men, they began to fly kites that were most unusual kites. They were not kites for enjoyment. They were kites to learn the, the airflow over wings. 
Then by the late 1800s and the early 1900s, they began to build gliders. And then finally, you know the rest of the story, is 1903, December the 17th, the first aircraft that was manned by its own power left the ground 121 feet. They did what just a few years earlier most individuals would thought it'll never happen. Today, most of us look at that as just a common occurrence. We don't gasp when we see a plane fly through the air. Most of us are very thankful for that invention, the convenience that it brings to our travel. Friends, I'm not saying that all of us here need to be inventors. I'm not suggesting to you that all of us need to do things that drastically changes the world from now until the Lord comes again. But I am suggesting to you that most things that are of great worth and great contributions to mankind began first in the mind of an individual. And oftentimes, others surrounding that individual thought, I don't think that will ever happen. When I think back a few years ago, I think back to a congregation that had no meals on wheels. One deacon could see in his mind that that could be a reality. As Kevin Hines began that, two years later, he moved to Japan. But his vision was already a reality. While the Hines family was several thousand miles from here, what he envisioned one day and began continued quite well. The importance of vision is that it outlives us. It accomplishes more than what we'll ever do without it. And it always affects the lives of other people. One more illustration, and then we'll think of Nehemiah. I remember when I first moved here, Erin Crisp was a teenager. I remember the excitement she would get in her eyes as she would speak about the Latin American trips. And then as she would describe, the reason I want to go into medicine is because I want to be able to go down and to serve those people in the medical team. You know, this year, that, that statement ran through my mind probably no fewer than a hundred times. Every time I would walk through the compound area there and I would see her touching those patients, I would see her talking to those patients, I would see her writing prescriptions for those patients, I couldn't help but think, even though this was her first trip in that capacity, that didn't just begin on that trip. That was a vision that she placed in her mind when she was a teenager. A vision that is now a reality. Most of the time when we say, oh, that's a first, it really is not a first because it was first seen in the mind of someone with vision. And it's simply now the first that it is a reality. What will you envision for the abilities God gives you? What will you envision for the opportunities that God gives you? What will you envision for your life for an eternity? What will you envision for your family? What will you envision if you're a deacon for your ministry? Or if you're heavily involved in a specific ministry, 
What will you envision in ways of helping and serving and promoting to even greater heights that area of service? Friends, God has given all of us abilities. He's given all of us opportunities. And I do not think that God has given us any of these things so that we can be a year from now exactly where we are today. That we can be ten years from now exactly where we are today. God is concerned about our growth. Growing closer to Him. Growing in such a way that we would have an influence and an impact on the lives around us. This morning we introduced simply the idea of vision. But tonight I want to ask you, how do you dream up that vision? And let's look again to the book of Nehemiah, and let's see how this vision was dreamed by Nehemiah. You remember the Scripture reading text this morning was Nehemiah, the first chapter, 1 through 4. And so this was where one came through from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah asked him what was happening there, what was the situation like. And in 3, he described that the survivors who were left there from the captivity in the providence are there in a great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now notice this reaction of Nehemiah, verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now as we read to the end of this chapter, we see more about his prayer, and when we see going into the second chapter, that prayer at the end of the first chapter is because he's going to approach the king for help. But before he ever approaches the king, we see 40 days here of leading into this of praying and fasting. But first let's back up to this idea of the weeping. There's something very significant about his reaction. While it appears by the action of the people, they had been oppressed by enemies. They even had noblemen or leaders over them that were conspiring with the enemy to keep Jerusalem beat down. The people in Jerusalem had accepted this condition. But there's one far away that could not accept the condition. And here is the bottom line. He had a burden in his heart. And he believed that he could make a difference. When you see a deacon that takes a ministry and that ministry excels, I can almost assure you that that is a deacon that has a burden in his heart for that ministry. He believes that something can be greater, something can improve, something can reach more people. When you see a parent, that you look at that parent and say, you know, they do a great job of parenting. Look how their children are being guided. Look how they're being directed. Notice, that's pointing to vision. They're being guided. They're being directed. In other words, that parent believes that something can be greater tomorrow than what it is today. Something can be greater next year than what it is this year. They have a vision that's cast before them. Don't you love it when you see people, I'm not talking about in their 20s, I'm talking about those that are in well into their adulthood years and they're still growing spiritually. Isn't it wonderful to see someone that's in their 40s or 50s or 60s and say, you know, I remember them five years ago and they're even more spiritual now. They know more of the Word of God now. You can tell when you listen to their prayers how, how devoted they are to God. What is that? That's someone that is on a continual path of growth. Why do those things happen? They happen because individuals have a burden in their heart that something can be different. 
Something can be improved. Something can be changed. I'm not suggesting to you that tears literally have to fall. But I am suggesting to you, if nothing disappoints you, if nothing upsets you, if nothing brings tears to your eyes or down your cheeks, we may need to evaluate our conscience. We're living in a world that has a lot of people that need serving. We're living in a world where the gospel is almost the state of being a part of a famine spiritually. How many people are dying around us in this very community without the Lord? Do you realize that by the end of this week, statistically, someone in Mount Juliet will die? That's mine and your neighbors. This week, Will they be saved? And if not, does that bother you at all? That one of our neighbors may die this week lost? People with burdens envision something greater. But so many individuals feel nothing. They're in a rut. Life is the same for them day in and day out. And if there's a vision out in front of them, it's chasing the dollar. It's chasing popularity. It's chasing prestige. It's fulfilling arrogance and a multitude of other things. And here's Nehemiah, hundreds of miles away, and he believes that God's people should not be oppressed by enemies of God. He believes that some of the leaders that are supposed to be God's leaders, that they themselves are working against the people, should not be working against the people. He believes that something can be different. And so it is. It's people with burdens that move individuals to greater heights. Look with me, if you will, as we go to Nehemiah, the fourth chapter. And I'd like for us to look at the fourth chapter and then at the sixth chapter. In the fourth chapter, in verse 14, we see also the fact that Nehemiah not only felt the burden, but he was willing to do something about it. In other words, many of us may say, well, you know, I feel this burden, and I believe that this is something that ought to be done. And then if someone were to say to us, well, why don't you do something? If we were completely honest, the answer would be, I'm afraid. I can think of something that's been on my mind heavy now for two years. And it was just in preparing for the lesson that I really became honest enough with myself to say, the reason I've been putting off doing that is because I've been afraid. Fear paralyzes us. Fear stops good things in their tracks. That's why God is not a God of fear, but a God of power and strength. There are many times where the enemies tried to work against Nehemiah's progress, trying to bring fear into the life of the people and fear in the life of Nehemiah. And the fourth chapter is one of those times where the enemies were surrounding them. First, they were talking down to the people, trying to discourage the people with their words. And finally, they, they were threatening violence against them as we move down in 6, 7, 8, and 9. 
And then they were fearful that they would literally be killed in verse 11. And they were told that in verse 12 ten times. And so Nehemiah repositions the people so that they would be protected. And then notice verse 14. And I looked and I rose said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. Isn't that a wonderful battle cry of a courageous leader? Enemies are surrounding us. Now keep in mind, in the past, they'd already done this to Ezra. And they had stopped progress in the past. And now these enemies were trying the same thing again with Nehemiah. Probably thinking, it's going to work again. It's the same people, just a different leader. And Nehemiah would not let fear come into the lives of the people. He says, we got an enemy, we'll approach the enemy. We'll guard the low parts of the wall where they may come over, but one thing's for sure, we're not going to stop doing what is right simply because an enemy is threatening us. And then he reminded them, remember God, great and awesome. Friends, if we're involved in something that's right, if we're involved in something that's good, if we're involved in something that God can bless and prosper, we're also involved in something that God can guard and protect. And so it is, as we sing, the battle belongs to the Lord. Isn't it awesome that as He pointed out to them, remember how great He is. But in that same breath He said, Now you, protect your families, protect your wives, protect your brethren, protect your children. You see the teamwork? God's on our side. He will strengthen us. But if we sit down and do nothing, look what we've done to our families. Look what we've done to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are not full of courage. Look to the 6th chapter now and let's go to the 6th chapter in verse 13. Let's see one more example of how his courage was so uh, great and so strong leading the people on. In the 6th chapter, as we begin reading verse 10, we have another time where an enemy was working against Nehemiah and this time they sent in a hired informant. This individual came in, of course, acting like he was a friend of Nehemiah and asked him, uh, told him that I need to warn you that someone's going to take your life. And to protect you, you need to come and you need to enter into the temple. Now keep in mind, uh, in the Pentateuch, we read that an individual can't enter the temple unless they're Levites or they shall be killed. That really caught Nehemiah's attention when the friend was asking him to do something that was against the will of God. And this is the explanation here, verse 13. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying they tried to bring fear into my life. Because if they brought fear into my life, I would do things that's wrong. With a calm peaceful, courageous mindset. I can recognize what's right and what's wrong. It's wrong to go into the temple. 
But if they can instill fear, instill fear into me, I'll run without thinking. I'll enter the temple and then they can bring me out and say, this man's worthy of death. If we're going to keep the law, we have to take the life of this man. Do you realize the arena of temptation we open ourselves up to when we live in the midst of fear instead of living by the strength and the courage that God offers His people? Let's look to this next slide, and we do not have time to elaborate on this next slide, but I thought it would be of an interest to us as we study Nehemiah. Here are eight areas that we are easily identified as you scan through the book of Nehemiah of ways that the enemy worked against Nehemiah. Early in the book, they ridiculed him. They laughed at him. They made fun of him. But he would not fear them. Later, they literally showed their anger. In other words, the enemy was showing their anger, but he would not be afraid of an angry enemy. They did eventually discourage the people in the fourth chapter, but he would not give in. Instead, he encouraged the people. He set fear into the lives of the people, and as we just read, he had to give them courage again to stand. And then also, he had to deal with the internal strife where the noblemen were literally making agreements with the enemies trying to destroy or work against Jerusalem. And he worked through that. Because of their discouragement, they wanted to quit working. He approached their laziness. There were threats and lies that he would be turned into the king, but he would not go and meet them. He would not stop what was good and righteous in the sixth chapter. And then we've already mentioned the lying prophet in the sixth chapter, the latter half. The point is this. It's so easy for us to study the book of Nehemiah and say, wow, that's awesome that he could go and organize those people and build a wall back in 52 days. You know what makes it even really a great challenge? was that through most of those 52 days, he was constantly fighting the enemy. One form or fashion, and sometimes the enemy would even change. But there was always an enemy working against him. Friends, I want to challenge me and you in these few words. Let's not be so quick to give up. When we put a vision in our mind that we know is right, we know that God would prosper it, we know that it would do good for God's work, for His glory, let's not be quick to give in. Someone says, oh, but it's hard over here, and I got discouraged over here, and somebody talked about me over here, and somebody literally worked against me over here. Someone mocked me over here. Let's remember that great example of Nehemiah. Fear paralyzes but courage, a person with a burden to make something better that courageously steps out can do much for the glory of God. Let's notice the third point as we go back to the first chapter. The third point is that as he began this burden, not in fear, but in courage, he began it really in prayer. He leaned heavily upon God. Do you remember when he first heard the news? We see the reaction of tears. We see the reaction of fasting. But we see the reaction of praying. 
When we come down to the very end of the first chapter, it's his prayer as he says, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I am the king's cupbearer. Notice how when he heard the news, he prayed. For 40 days he prayed. Now he's ready to go in before the king, but before he would go into the king, he prays. As we read down in the second chapter, he does go in and stand before the king. The king wants to know why his face is sad, and he explains that the tomb, the city that has the tomb of his father has been destroyed, the wall is demolished, the gates are burned, and that's why I'm sad. How could I be happy about that? And so the king says, what can I give for you? What is your request? And instead of spouting his request, we read there in, in the second chapter and in verse 4, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Friends, over and over and over throughout Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah being a man of prayer. He started with prayer, and he maintained his vision through prayer. Listen, if you and I have a vision that we don't need to pray about, we probably don't have a vision that's worth accomplishing. Let's be involved in something that's greater than us as individuals. Let's be involved in something that's great enough that we have to have the blessings of God on our side or it could never be accomplished. Nehemiah is a wonderful example of a man that prayed. Notice also, though, as we still in this first chapter... The part that we just skipped over, we read down to four, then we went over to the last part of the chapter. But notice, if you will, verse 6 and 7, and listen to this spiritual integrity of this man. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, and you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of your children of Israel which we have sinned against you both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you command your servant Moses. And then the following verses, he reminds God of his promise, that God made the promise that if the people turned against him, he would scatter them across the earth, and that's how they were in exile. But yet if they would come back to the, uh, back to the commandments of God, God promised Moses that He would bring them back and build that city again. And so He's reminding God of that promise. But notice the spiritual integrity. Notice how He admitted the wrong that He had committed. And notice how He also confessed the sins of the people. Now when you read the whole book, that makes sense. Because you remember as we talked about this morning, once He went back into Jerusalem, He started working with the people spiritually. He started cleaning up the leadership. He started having the law read before them again. He urged them to get their families pure again in the sight of God. In other words, what he's confessing now is, is almost as if he's saying to God, God, I know I've been wrong and I want to straighten my life out, but I also want to go back to my nation of people and I want to help them clean up their life too. Godly vision cannot continually exist in the life of individuals that are not people of spiritual integrity. 
When men are elders, but yet they are not of spiritual integrity, it catches up with them sooner or later. When deacons are not men of spiritual integrity, it catches up with them sooner or later. When teachers and ministers are not people of spiritual integrity, their students see through it and do not respect their teaching. When mothers and fathers do not live what they teach, their teaching is hollow. When we profess to our co-workers that we are Christians, but yet we are not people of spiritual integrity, we are a laughingstock and a hypocrite. Friends, we've talked all day long about vision. But I want us to close with something that if there could be anything more important than vision, it's our integrity. Because without that, we have no hope for the future. We have no hope of eternal life. There's not one perfect, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and 23. You see, the question is not, do I ever do wrong? The question is, am I forgiven? And do I remain of a person of humility that I'm still willing to admit when I'm wrong? Vision can never be achieved by someone that thinks they're perfect. If you and I can't say that we're sorry to our family members, we'll never be able to help our family accomplish great things. If we can't admit our wrongs to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will never be able to help our brothers and sisters to greater heights because they will not respect us because of the haughtiness and arrogance that we display. When we look through the Scriptures, we see a lot of great men and women. We don't see any of them except our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, perfect. But the difference in the ones that died great and the ones that fell by the wayside was whether or not they were able to maintain that spiritual integrity. Nehemiah went back and just as he did in chapter 1, he confessed the sins of the people. By the rest of this book, he proved the fact that he was on a mission, not just to build a wall, but to move people closer to God. Tonight, what's your vision? What is it that you're doing now as the last writings of the great apostle Peter he would urge us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are we doing to grow? Grace, that's the gifts that God gives us. That's abilities. And knowledge, that's learning more of God. I want to urge you to look around and find something that breaks your heart. And then instead of, be, of saying, I'm afraid to do anything about it, if it's right, step out in courage. But first pray. 
and then make sure that every step along the way we live a life of integrity. If you need to be baptized into Christ, if you need to be restored, to admit our wrong and repent of it, confess sin, let's pray forgiveness. Tonight, let's make sure that we all leave here with at least this one clear vision. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. I want to stand on the day of judgment more than anything else in the world and hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Surely you have the same vision. Let's make sure that we leave here tonight ready for that very thing. If we can help you anyway, come as we stand, as we sing. God will make a way.